Here's a picture from our group multiplication last Sunday, all right? So we have Jake and Kara that are on the screen. Jake came into Sunday Best, his city jersey, right? So just celebrating, right? The best way that you possibly can. And so we got to pray over them. We got to see new groups that were commissioned out. This Tuesday, we saw Kara's group meeting at Bread Co. on Chippewa and Watson. Look at that, just adorable, right? So um, my group was meeting at the Starbucks. If you look through the window, we are right through there, all right? So it was John Kopsky, Preston Miller, and me, and we were sitting there, and we were just having a wave fest back and forth with one another, right? And so um, while we were, my group is meeting, um, there's something that was weird that happened, all right? So we are doing our normal routine. We're working through our Bible reading plan. We're, work, <clears throat> we're working through catechism, and then we're praying for each other, and in the midst of our conversation, we get interrupted by something that's going on behind us, all right? So here's what happens. There's a customer that comes in, and they're yelling. They're yelling at the baristas behind the counter, all right? And so here's what the customer is saying. I just want you to get my drink right so I can go. They are irate. They are upset because their drink is not the way they want it to be. And so the dialogue is going back and forth. The manager comes He's trying to mitigate the whole experience. And so his response after the customer said, I just want my drink right so I can go. Here's what the manager says. We just want to get your drink right too because we want you to go. <laughs> Awkward, right? Like we're trying to have a conversation. Our conversation dies because we are just listening in on what is going on. So Needless to say, it was hard to get back into the swing of things because of the awkwardness that happened behind us. Well, tonight we're looking at the third of the final of, of the three autobiographical sections of Galatians. Here's what that means. Paul is arguing for the validity of the gospel, and he's using his life story to argue for that validity. And what we see in our text this evening is it contains a confrontation, the confrontation that happened at Starbucks, it was awkward. Well, here we see a confrontation between two apostles. And it's awkward, all right? It's awkward. Here's what verse 11 says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because, look, he stood condemned. <laughs> He's writing this to a group of people. <laughs> it's like, this is awkward, Right? We're talking about two of the most well-known apostles in all of the Bible. I mean, if you look at the book of Acts, it's basically divided into two sections. One section is looking at Peter, which is Cephas here in this passage. And the second one is looking at the life of Paul. And why does Paul have to come and confront Peter in this, this letter? And this is happening in Antioch, but... Peter is, or Paul is saying about this confrontation, he's sharing it with the Galatians. And why does he need to do this? Well, we see in verse 14 that Peter has deviated from the truth of the gospel. That's why he has to come and confront Peter. And so here's what we're going to do tonight, all right? We're just going to lean into the awkwardness. <laughs> We're going to lean into the awkwardness of this confrontation. We're going to look at the confrontation. And here's what I believe we're going to see. It tells us a lot about this. How to live your life in light of the gospel. That's what we're going to see in this passage. What it looks like to live a life 
in light of the gospel. Here's what we're going to see. The gospel does first, it shapes all of your life. The gospel shapes all of your life. And then as we lean into that and we look at what that truly means and how we can tease it out in our life, we're going to then look at how the gospel shapes all of our life. We're going to look at like, okay, if the gospel is to shape all of my life, then practically what does that look like for me to live it out? That's what we're going to do. And as we do this, we're going to see the defining quality of the gospel life. And I'm going to save that to the end. All right. So we're going to see how the, go- that the gospel shapes all of life, how the gospel shapes all of life, and then the defining quality of a gospel-shaped life. So the first few verses of our passage, they tell us the details about this confrontation that Paul has with the apostle Peter. So we're going to start there. And as we look at these details, we'll see how the gospel shapes all of life. All right. So verse 11, I'm going to read through the first few verses so we can unpack it a little bit. Here's what it says. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here's what's going on, all right? The apostle Peter has come to visit this Gentile church in Antioch, right? So this modern day Turkey, it feels like every place that I'm telling you in this book of Galatians happens in Turkey. But that's where this is, is that Antioch is in modern day Turkey. It's 300 miles away from Jerusalem. So it's about a two week journey if you're doing it on foot. All right. And so Peter has come to Antioch and here's what he's doing. Peter is eating and he's associating with Gentile Christians, Now, this is a big no-no in Jewish culture because Gentiles and the food that they eat are both considered unclean according to Jewish culture. But Peter's doing this because something happened in his life. In Acts chapter 10, we get an account about this thing that has happened in Peter's life. Jesus shows up in a vision in Peter's life. So here's the vision that happens in Acts chapter 10, all right? Peter is minding his own business in the middle of the day, and then Jesus interrupts his life, and he has this vision of a blanket that's filled with unclean animals that are coming down from heaven. And Jesus speaks to Peter and says, take and eat. And you know what Peter's response is? No. Why does he do that? He does it three times. Peter says, I can't take and eat of these animals because I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And here's Jesus' response to him, all right? Jesus says this, what God has made clean, do not call impure. So he's talking about the food that the Gentiles eat, all right? Simultaneously, while this is happening in Acts chapter 10, Jesus also sends messengers to come get Peter, to take him to a Roman centurion, which is a Gentile, who is spiritually curious about what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. And so these messengers, as Jesus is, or as Peter is having this vision from Jesus, they come and get Peter. They take him to Cornelius. And as he's meeting with Cornelius, you see Gentiles come to believe in Jesus Christ. And as he's talking with them, here's his response to these Gentile, these people that are spiritually curious. Here's what Peter says. God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. 
So you see why, why Peter is eating and associating with Gentiles. It's because of what Jesus has done in his life in Acts chapter 10. He's eating like a Gentile. He's associating with Gentiles until some from the circumcision party come from Jerusalem to Antioch. And here's what happens as soon as this circumcision party shows up in Antioch around Peter. He withdraws from Gentile Christians and he separates his life from them. And he's compelling them to now follow Jewish customs on top of Jesus to have a relationship with God, to be invited into the family of God. And here's what Paul says about all that Peter is doing. He's being a hypocrite. He's being a hypocrite. And what makes this worse is that others are following Peter's example. Peter is an influential guy. And what we see here is that as Peter is doing this, he withdraws and separates from the Gentile Christians. Paul says that the other Jews are doing this as well. Here's what verse 13 says. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas, this is one of Paul's closest associates in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. That's how influential Peter is. That not only were the other Jewish, the born Jewish people following Peter's example, but even Paul's closest associate was following Peter's example here and was led astray by their hypocrisy. And so what does Paul do? Paul confronts Peter in what he is doing. You see this in verse 14. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I, Paul, confronted Cephas, which is Peter, in front of everyone. So here's the, that phrase, deviated from the truth of the gospel, is really important here. What is the truth of the gospel? Here's the truth of the gospel. We've talked about this in previous weeks. Is that all people can have fellowship with God through faith alone in Jesus. All people. Meaning that no matter whether you are Jew or Gentile by birth, all people can have fellowship with the living God. And how do they do that? By having faith alone in Jesus. Jesus' life and work is sufficient for salvation in God. That is the gospel message. That is the truth of the gospel. Now here's what's going on in Peter's life. Peter believes this in his head but he's not practicing it with his life. Peter believes that this truth about the gospel is true. You've seen this because last week we saw that he approved Paul's message, that it's faith alone in Jesus that brings you into salvation, that brings you into the family of God. But now we see that Peter's life and his beliefs don't match. And Paul comes and confronts him and says, look, Peter, your belief and your life, they must align. Another way of what Paul is saying here is that the gospel shapes all of your life, all right? So let me use a funny illustration here, all right? Think about this like a car wash, okay? <laughs> I know, a little silly. A little silly. Um, here, here's what happens at a car wash, all right? You, you put your belief to practice, all right? What is key about a car wash? It's that conveyor belt, right? 
You drive up to a car wash, that conveyor belt, like you have the associate that's telling you to come and put your tire on the conveyor belt. And here's what you believe, all right? When you come to a car wash, you believe that if you give your car to the conveyor belt, your car will be made clean, right? And so what do you do? You drive up to the conveyor belt, you align your tire with the conveyor belt, it takes you through the car wash, and what's the result? Your car is clean, right? Look, Peter believes that the life and work of Jesus, it was what makes people clean. But in practice, Peter has gotten off the track. Peter's gotten off the track. He's taken grip of the wheel. He's put his foot on the gas. He's turned off of the conveyor belt. And what happens if you do that in a car wash? The result is a wreck, and it leaves in a giant mess, right? That's exactly what happens with Peter's life. It's a giant wreck. He's, he's turned off the truth of the gospel that it's Jesus alone. And in, the result is a giant mess. People are following him in his hypocrisy. People are confused by his practice because he's, he's preached this good news of Jesus alone. But now you look at his life and it doesn't match so, but look, here's, here's what we need to recognize, all right? God does a good work in Paul, Peter's life. You look at the rest of Peter's life, you, you don't see that he continues down this track. What brings Peter back on track? What gets his life back on track? It's confrontation. It's confrontation, all right? Here's what we hear whenever we think about this word confrontation, all right? We think it's unloving and it's not gracious, Right? Like, if we hear these things, it's like, Paul, why don't you just be more loving to Peter? Paul, why don't you just be more gracious to him? God's been so gracious to you. Why don't you just be gracious to Peter? Well, here's what we need to recognize, all right? Confrontation in the midst of loving relationship is the practice of God's grace, not the absence of it. Confrontation in the midst of loving relationship is not the absence of God's grace, it's the practice of it. Because here's why, all right? Think about what grace does in your life. Grace is the unmerited gift that you get fellowship with God on behalf of all of what Christ has done for you. That's what, fellowship, that's what grace is. It brings you into fellowship with God. And so look, what's happening with Peter is he's saying it's Jesus and, like we've talked about before, not Jesus, period. He's saying it's Jesus and what all these circumcision party are preaching, that you must become a Jewish person by ritual and custom. But what we know from what we've looked at throughout the rest of Galatians is that it's Jesus, period. It's just his faith alone in Christ of all that he's done for us. So what Paul is doing here is he's calling Peter back to this life with Jesus, this fellowship with God that is in Christ alone. And so look, he's calling him back to grace, not leading him away from it. So what he's doing is he's practicing the kindness of God in Peter's life, calling him back to the thing that only brings salvation. This confrontation in the midst of loving relationship is the practice of God's grace, not the absence of it, because it's leading him back to fellowship with God. Do you see that? Now look, none of us are better than Peter, are we? 
Like we get off the tracks all the time, don't we? Oh my goodness. Like we are, the, we are Peter. We are the ones that if you look at our life, a lot of times what we believe in our minds does not align with the practice of our life, right? I mean, we need what Peter gets here. But the thing we need to ask, because I don't know if we really practice confrontation well in the church, all right? And we need to ask the question, why don't we practice confrontation? Why don't we practice this? And I believe there's two reasons why. One, we lack relationship. And then two, we lack approachability. Here's how we view the church. We view the church as an event and not as our family. And so here's what that practice looks like for us. We show up on Sunday to come and consume the performance at the neglect of the relationship of the family. We show up on Sunday. We want to take in what happens on the stage, but then we don't invest in relationship on Sunday or throughout the week. And so we lack relationship. We come in here and we just want to consume and go on with our life after we leave this place. But look, if you want to experience the beauty of the gospel, you must step into relationship. But not only that, look, we lack approachability. All right? Here's what confrontation does. All right? It comes and it confronts four of the main idols that you see in your own heart. When you think, if you try to look at our life and what are the things that we cling to in this life that we want to have tight fists around, there's four things, all right? It's comfort, it's pride, it's approval, and it's control. And confrontation disrupts all of those. Confrontation brings discomfort to your life. It is not comfortable for someone to confront you in your sin. It confronts, it It brings discomfort in your life. Look, it also attacks your pride. It is hard to be humble. It is hard to accept that someone else is calling out sin in your life. It is humbling. It threatens our sense of approval. People are coming and they've observed our life and they're coming and telling you the way that you are acting is not okay which feels like I'm not approved. And it removes us from the place of control, right? We want to have our hands on the wheel, leading the car forward. When someone comes to confront us, they're showing us that we're on the wrong path and it's removing our hands from the wheel. And so look, this makes us unapproachable. (laughs) When our idols of our hearts, the things that we grip our hands to, are confronted, here's what our response looks like. How dare you? How dare you come and confront me? Who do you think you are? That, that's, if you're not saying it with your lips, look, you say it with your heart. No, look, this, this cuts deep. Like I, I've wrestled with it this week, right? It cuts deep. I talked about this with our staff in staff meeting this past Tuesday. So I've been sitting with this for quite some time. I've felt really cut, felt very deep, right? Like this is, I'm speaking to myself. I'm not just speaking to you. I'm speaking to myself. The, the question then for us then, if we're not practicing this, then what does it look like for us to do it? Like how do we practice healthy confrontation as the family of God. Look, as we're looking at this passage, I think the common practice actually doesn't look like what Paul does with Peter here, all right? 
Let me explain. Peter is a prominent leader in the church, and people are being led astray by his example. So the confrontation that Paul meets Peter with, it matches both the severity and the situation of what's going on here. So look, because Peter is influential, Paul needs to be bold. And because Peter has led people astray, it needs to be public. That is for this situation. Here's what I think actual healthy confrontation looks like for us, though. I think it looks like my wife, Cherish, confronting me in our home regarding my sin. Because, look, that happens in the context of loving relationship. It's quiet and it's private. That's what I believe healthy confrontation most likely looks like for us. All right, can I, can I just be really vulnerable with you? Can I give you like a life situation, an example of what that's looked like for us? All right, so um, life is stressful, right? Um, my work is stressful. Um, trying to parent is stressful. All the things that come with our day-to-day life and trying to go to all the different places is stressful. And so in our home, oftentimes my stress bleeds over into the home. And here's what stress Josh looks like, all right? I get impatient and I am too direct. And so here's what it looks like whenever I get to that place. Um, Cherish so lovingly comes to me and she says, are you okay? Are you okay? Like I, I've noticed this is how we're experiencing you in the home, all right? I can tell that like you're just a little bit more short than you usually are. I can tell that your words are a little bit more sharp than what they typically are. Are are you okay? And you know what that does to me? I mean, it's quiet and it's in private and it's in the context of loving relationship. You know what it does to me? It's convicting. It's convicting. I'm like, you know what? You're totally right. Here's why it's convicting. My life is not aligning with my beliefs because here's the reality. That is not how God has treated me. He has not been impatient with me. He's not been sharp or quick with his words with me. It's been actually quite the opposite. And that's exactly how Cherish often approaches me about my sin in the context of our home. And look, that's what it's supposed to look like in the life of the church. When we invest in the relationships of the family of God, you're in the context of loving relationship. You know each other's life. You know what's going on in one another. You know what it looks like whenever you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. And so in quiet and in private, we confront each other about the lack of living and aligning our life and our belief together. Remember, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And so that is what confrontation in the church is to look like. It's the kindness of God that is our model and our example. So look, confrontation is what brings Peter back in alignment to the truth of the gospel. We need this in our life. You need this in your life. You need people that know you, 
that see what's going on in your life and can speak in and you need an humble, approachable spirit to receive that correction. That's what it looks like for the gospel to shape all of our life. Your belief and your practice are aligned and when you get off track, you have people who love you enough to come and confront you so that you can get back on track. You know what I'm saying? You feel that? All right, so here's the question. So like, confrontation is not fun for anyone, (laughs) right? It's not, like it's not fun for you. It's not fun for the person that's coming and confronting you. So what does it look like for us to not get off track? Like how do we live a gospel-shaped life? How does the gospel shape all of our life? Well, we get that in verses 19 through 20, all right? So I want to look at how the gospel shapes all of life. Verses 15 through 18, Paul again is coming back and explaining the sufficient work of Jesus for salvation. That's what's happening in verses 15 through 18. So here's what he says in verse 19. He says this, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All right, so here, how do we live a gospel-shaped life? Here's how you do it. You practice union with Christ. You practice your union with Jesus, all right? We understand the essence of this because we have terminology that kind of gets to the essence of it, all right? Here's one of those phrases, guilty by association. Guilty by association, all right? So let me give you another life-revealing example here, right? So when I'm in high school, I was at a friend's sleepover at at my friend's house, and after his parents had gone to sleep, my friends and me, we snuck out of the house. We snuck out of the house, and my friends began to vandalize the whole entire neighborhood, all right? I didn't do any of it, but I was with them, all right? The next morning, all of our parents find out. And so I'm guilty by association, all right? Here's basically what happens. It was as if I performed the acts of vandalism myself. I was guilty by association because I was there. Look, union with Christ is much like this, but it's just in the positive sense, What happens in your union with Christ, how you entered in union with Christ, is you trust in Jesus. You place your faith in Jesus and his life and work. And as you place your faith and your hope in the life and work of Jesus, what you're saying is, I'm uniting myself to Jesus. You're so associating yourself with Jesus that his life and his works become your own. And so his works are attributed to you. It's as if you are the one that performed the acts yourself. That's what happens with union with Jesus, all right? We have a practice in the church that puts this on public demonstration before the whole entire church, and it's baptism. We practiced this last week. What happens in baptism? You unite yourself with Jesus. Here's the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Verse four. He says this, Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, 
just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. This is exactly what Paul is getting at. He's getting at union with Christ in verses 19 and 20. What he's doing for us in these two verses is he's practicing before us what it looks like for us to live in light of our union with Jesus. He's given us a public example of what it looks like. Let me point this out to you. I'll look at verse 19 and then verse 20 to show you how we're doing this. All right, verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I died to the law as a means for my salvation. Paul's saying, it's not my work that brings me into fellowship with God. It's not me following the commands that God has given to his people. It's not my life that brings me into fellowship with God as if I have anything to come and offer what Paul is saying. Instead, I've died to the law because I've trusted in everything Jesus has done on my behalf. Union with Christ. You see it even more explicitly in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. This is union with Christ's language. What he's saying is, I'm so closely associated with Jesus. I'm so united in my faith in what Jesus has done on my behalf that whenever Jesus was crucified, it's as if I was nailed on that cross with him. That's how united I am with him in his death. But look, it goes, it's so good. He says, I live in Christ now because look, the grave is empty. Jesus has risen from the grave. And so look, what Paul is saying is, I'm not only was I crucified with Jesus on the cross as Jesus was resurrected from the grave and experienced eternal life. I was so united with Jesus that I also was raised from the grave with him. The power of the resurrection that was at work in Jesus on that third day that rose him from the grave is the exact same work that is going on inside of my own heart. Union with Christ. Look, this affects us. When you understand your union with Jesus, it affects you because here is how it changes your life. You live from a completed work and not an incomplete work. We call, look at, think back to Peter's life here, all right? So we look back at that first section. Um, what caused Peter to get off track? It's the fear of man. Look at verse 12. When they came... He withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Look, the fear of man is always an incomplete work. All right? You live moment by moment for another person's approval and it's never ending. Here's what fear of man is like. It's a what can you do for me now type of work. It is ongoing and it's never sufficient. It's never complete. And you always are having to prove yourself to people. And so what's the cause? What leads, uh, what does this lead to in your life? It leads to what Peter experienced in his life. It leads to fear. 
and it leads to anxiety because it's always based on your performance. I always have to bring it in front of people and it's never a sufficient, never a complete work and so it's ongoing and I have to moment by moment keep it going in front of people at all times. But look, the fear of God is different. The fear of God is different. It's a completed work because it's rooted in Jesus Christ. The fear of God is different because it's always rooted in the work and life of Jesus, which was a completed work. Notice the tense that Paul uses in verses 19 and 20. Here's what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. This is all past tense. This is all stuff that has been done in the the past. Why does Paul use past tense here? Because what Jesus did was a completed work. It was sufficient. It satisfied God's wrath for sin against you. And it's why Paul talks and speaks in the past tense. Because you are united with Christ. You live from a completed work, not an incomplete work. And here's the kind of life that that kind of union with Jesus gives you. It gives you a free life. It gives you freedom. You know what the quality, the defining quality of the Christian life is? It's freedom. Freedom. You no longer live with fear and anxiety, anxiety wondering if you are accepted because you're united with Jesus. You are crucified with Christ. You are resurrected with Jesus. The work that he did on the cross and the resurrection he experienced that third day was sufficient and it was complete, which means you are fully approved. The fear of man and the anxiety that goes with it is no longer your life because you live from a completed work, not the incomplete work that the fear of man is. Here's what this looks like. Can we just get really practical? This means that you are freed from having to maintain your image before other people. You no longer have to live in slavery to what other people's opinions are of you. It means you don't have to perform anymore. Can, like, can we just like take a collective deep breath there? Right? Look, Christian, you don't have to perform for anyone anymore because Christ has performed for you. And his work is complete and sufficient. So here's what the voice that is living with the fear of man says. Have I served enough? When people look at my life and the church and those that I'm living before, have I served? When they look at my life, does it look like I'm following Jesus enough by the way that I serve other people? Have I made enough? Do I look 
like my life is held together by the amount of money that I have in my bank account, the type of car that I drive, the kind of house that I live in, the raises and the next steps that I've taken in my, like, have I done enough? Have I made the right friends? When people look at me and they see the social network that I have, does it speak highly enough of me? Are the people that I have surrounded myself with, is their social status high enough that maintains the image that I want to have with other people? That's what the fear of man says. But living in union with Christ says, you are free from that. Because Jesus is performed fully and completely on your behalf. And look, God looks at you with nothing but approval. It also means you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. Here's what the fear of man says. The sin that you did, whether towards somebody else or done in private, you can never talk about it. You need to maintain your image before other people and so you can't confess your sin. Here's what the gospel does for you. It says that Jesus knows more about your life and your sin than even you do. And he still died for you. He knew exactly what had happened in your past. He knows what you're struggling with in the present. And he knows the sin that you're going to commit in the future. And he still died for you. Here's what that means. You can confess your sin. You can go to the person that you hurt and you can confess your sin. The sin that you did in private, you can go and confess that to a person in a loving relationship. And what we know is that how God meets you is that you have an advocate in Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God that is telling the Father that that sin was paid for. You don't have to hide. That's how you live a gospel-shaped life. You live from a completed work, not an incomplete work. Because you are united with Christ. Christian, you can live free. Let's end with this, all right? Would you please let the gospel shape your life? Would you please let the gospel shape your life? May the way that you believe and the way that you live be aligned. Look, you can't do it alone. Christianity is never an isolated life. So here's, here's the call for you tonight. Get into loving relationship. Join a group. Make your presence known here. And then share your life with people. Like be consistent. Show up. Share your life. Let people in. And as you do, you begin to see your belief and your life align. 
because people know you well enough that whenever your life gets off track, that they lovingly confront you and call you back. And look, you also practice your freedom in Christ. You let your guard down. We live so tight. We're always trying to maintain the image that we feel like people have. When they look at us, we have this idea of what they think of us. And fear of man says, I have to continue to perform. But look, because you're united with Jesus, you live from a complete work, not an incomplete work, which means you can let your guard down. You don't have to maintain that image anymore. And you can breathe the deep breath of the sigh of the grace of God that he accepts me as I am. Not because of the work that I have done, but because of the work that Christ has done for me. Would you live a gospel-shaped life? It's a life of freedom. And it's the life that God wants you to live. Let's pray.